Good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. Good morning. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's truly good to be here with you this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter number 10. Acts chapter number 10. And we'll be wrapping up uh, the last few verses here in chapter 10 as we continue through our series looking at uh, the book of Acts um, while you're turning there, for those of you who may not know me, if it's your first time here, if you're a visitor, uh, my name is Travell, and I am a member here of Redeemer Fellowship. I um, help serve with our youth um, in Journey Kids on Sunday mornings and also in our sojourn. And uh, we have some exciting things coming up. So if you have a, um, a child that is in middle school or high school, um, come check us out. We got a lot of stuff. We got a parents meeting coming up uh, tomorrow, I believe. And so uh, we just invite you to come be a part of that. Um, last thing I'll say before we get into the word is our pastor, primary preaching pastor, Pastor Joe, is on sabbatical. He's on his way back to us shortly, so don't worry. He can, uh, uh, you don't have to deal with us much longer. And uh, so, uh, but continue to pray for him for his time, that it was rejuvenating and that he has rest and that he's uh, ready to come back to us. Amen? Amen. So Acts chapter 10, we'll take a look at this uh, beginning at verse 44, and before our, we read the text, let me breathe a word of prayer for our time together, and then uh, we'll read the text and we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for um, this time uh, to worship um, as a body of believers. And so, Father, now as we come to this preaching moment, we pray that you would give us listening ears to hear and receptive hearts to receive uh, what you will say to us today from your word. We pray, as always, that we would not just be hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, but that we would be effectual doers of your word. Father, we pray that by the Spirit of God, you would use the word of God to reveal unto us the Son of God. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 44, says, While Peter was... Uh, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised had, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For when they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received this Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ. And then he asked him to remain, and then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. So we come to chapter 10 um, as we wrap up this chapter. What's happening here in the, this section of our text is that the church was born in Jerusalem, and at this time it was comprised mostly of Jews at the beginning. In fact, it was almost exclusively Jewish people and some Samaritans um, who were there with the uh, Jerusalem Jews and the Hellenistic Jews and a group of Samaritans that were encompassing in the church. And the church had pretty much become identified with Judaism. And there had grown up here in this wonderful church uh, uh, that was, we see blossoming throughout these first nine, ten chapters of the book of Acts. There's grown up in this church a party, uh, a faction in the church of people that can be called the circumcision party. They had come to the conclusion that the only way to get to Christianity was through Judaism, was through the foyer of Judaism. Um, 
And you really couldn't get into Christianity, they believed, unless you had come through Judaism and were circumcised. In order, and so they had built up um, these fences to kind of keep out these undesirables, if you will. And they made circumcision their standard. And so, as they were trying to keep the Gentiles at arm's length, um, unless they came through the physical rite of circumcision, that you can neither have Judaism or Christianity. And they made Judaism this sort of room that you have to enter in first before you get into Christianity. And they, they did this, again, to declare a way for them to keep those undesirables out. And circumcision became the fence that they built uh, for that. But I come to tell you this morning that Jesus is in the business of smashing fences. And that's exactly what we see in this text. Um, so as we come to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, the Lord adds to the church Gentiles. Um, these were the pagans, the, those, they were despised by the Jews who they didn't like much. They did not want them to come in. They considered them to be unclean. And, and so the Lord will add them to the church. He includes them into the church, one body, along with the Jews. Now, this is going, not going to be an easy thing for them to have to deal with, but our Lord has already designed long time ago that he would have one body. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. And he comes to make one new man to join together both Jews and Gentiles. We see it in Ephesians chapter 3 that the mystery of the church was that Jews and Gentiles were now one in Christ. And that was God's design to have one group of people who were his own people. One body. His body that he was going to use to be the channel to get to the world. And these Gentiles, he would bring in to reach out for him as well. But again, these Jewish believers, they believed that the uncircumcised were alienated from God and that they were corrupt and so forth and so on. And they had this ultra Judaistic kind of segment and they kept them away uh, in their framework to keep certain people out from the early church. And they tried to hold on to these distinctives. And they really shouldn't do that because really when you read your Bible, even in the Old Testament, it's made clear, very clear that God outlines that he will bring all people together. And Peter says in verse 34 that he's come to learn a hard lesson that God is not a respecter of persons. And that's nothing new. That's something old. We see that even in the Old Testament. And so Peter should have known this, but he's learning this as time goes on. And we see this. Jesus himself says so much of this as he commissions us his parting words, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. To who? To the Jews? No. To the world. To every creature. He says, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the, our mission. Jesus makes it clear that fellowship with Christ was not exclusive the way that they wanted it to be. But it was wide open. That is available to all. And that's really is the only reason that uh, we can rejoice today. We see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, that Paul says, we are all sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And as many who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, so there is neither Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. And that's the message of Christianity. There is no distinction. So when Christ came, God fulfilled his promise. 
God promised this, that in Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it was not just the salvation of the Jewish believers uh, exclusively, but in fact that all the families of the earth would be blessed. So the reality is, is that they weren't given the gospel, the Jews were not given the gospels as a end, but really as a mean. Now when we look out into the world, we find that all men are in need of salvation equally. All men equally need salvation, but all men are equally unable to provide it. So God provides it equally to all men. There's no prejudice. Christ came into the world to be the savior of the world. Peter had to learn this through a series of lessons. He learns this through a vision. He learns this in the house of Simon the Tanner, as we saw a few weeks ago, he, God has broken down some things to Peter that he felt so strongly about in terms of tradition and his backgrounds. But by little by little, Peter's attitude begins to break down. And finally, here he admits that God is no respecter of persons. So God has prepared him. And then he comes and he preaches to Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Gentile who was a ruler over many men. He was a ruler over hundreds of men in the army in Rome. And Cornelius was, Cornelius was a man who had attached himself to Judaism. And he believed that God was the one true God and that he represented uh, Israel. But yet he doesn't know salvation yet. And so Peter comes and he preaches the word of God to him and he brings him the message of the gospel. And Cornelius is not alone, but he's there in a house full of people and they're gathered together and there they're all eagerly waiting to hear what Peter has to say. And so now as we come to chapter 10, we'll see that chapter 10 is a major part. It's a major chapter in the Bible. Because he presents, Peter presents the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And then they get saved. And the spirit of God is poured out on them. And we see the results. And that's good news for us. Just by chance, by show of hands, is there, do we have anyone here of Jewish background? By chance? All right. Uh, I don't think I see. Look around. I don't think I see any hands. So that means we're all Gentiles. This is good news for us. The gospel is for us. The gospel goes out to all people. And that's what we're going to see as the Holy Spirit has pointed out. So if we're going to kind of summarize this text this morning, we'll summarize it like this. This will be our main idea. The one thing I want you to get from the sermon is that God saves people who are far off by sending gospel messengers to bring Jesus near. God saves people who are far off by sending out gospel messengers to bring Jesus near. And as we look at this text, we'll look at it in three ways this morning. We'll see three things happening as a result of the spirit being poured out. First, we'll see that they receive spiritual power, spiritual power. And then we'll see that they have a symbolic confession, symbolic confession. And then lastly, we'll see they have sweet fellowship. Let's start with spiritual power. Look at verse 44. So the first thing that happens in verse 44 is that while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all of them who heard the word. So his message as Peter's preaching. His message is interrupted here while he's speaking. We'll see even if you look over and um, make a note of Acts chapter 11, verse 15, he goes back to report to the folks at Jerusalem. And he says that as he begins to speak, the, the Holy Spirit fell on them at the beginning. So we see a report from him later on that the, as he's preaching here in this house, the spirit interrupts a sermon and the, it pours out on the Gentiles. 
Peter's just getting warmed up. He's just giving his message. He's just getting going, and then the Spirit comes. You may say, well, what does this mean? And I'm going to take some time to expand this thought, but the minute that Peter said salvation is available, and it's available in Christ, and it's by faith, they believed. So when they heard the word, they believed. And that's all that needs to happen for someone to believe. When you hear the word, you believe, and then what happens to them? God grants them his Holy Spirit. That's what happens. And we're going to take some time to expand this thought. But uh, for me, I grew up in a Pentecostal denomination, historically a very large, the uh, largest predominantly African-American Pentecostal denomination in the world. And for us, we were taught growing up is that there's two experiences. The first experience is that of salvation. You get saved. You make the confession of faith. You believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and then you're saved, and then that's it. And then there's another experience that you need to have where you have to go seek for the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, what we see with that kind of teaching is that that's not clear in Scripture. What's clear in Scripture is that they hear the word, They believe, they get saved, and then the Spirit pours out on them. That's how it happens. Immediately, when they believe, they get the Spirit. God does not withhold his Spirit, friends. He does not withhold the Spirit from a believing heart. And so it would be wrong to say that someone can be saved and not have the Holy Spirit within them. And so here they believed. God interrupts Peter's sermon, and he gives them the Holy Spirit. This is the Pentecost for the Gentiles. God gives them the Holy Spirit when they believed. Now, this becomes the norm for every believer from that point on. When a person believes, God gives them their spirit at that time. Here's your salvation, here's the spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus, instantly, God gives you his spirit. It dwells within you. It lives within. He lives within you. Excuse me. He lives within you. The spirit of God lives within you. His presence is with you. The spirit of God, his presence is just as eternal as your salvation. And this is the immediate result of saving faith. The spirit indwells the the believer instantly. When you believe, and this is, is clear in scripture, and I'll take some time here, Just a few references, if you walk with me to the book of um, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, and here it shows us clearly how this happens. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 26. Listen, here's the promise of God. He says, a new heart also will I give you. All right, that's salvation. A new heart that I will give you, that's salvation. Everybody needs a new heart. The Bible says that our hearts are wicked deceitfully above all things they're wicked and deceitful so we need a new heart that's salvation we need a new heart and he says a new heart that I will give you and then a new spirit I will put within you notice here in this verse the salvation and the spirit are connected at the same moment I'll take away your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh And he says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my ordinances and do them to obey me. I want to tell you something, beloved. If you do not have the spirit of God, then you cannot obey God. 
If you do not have the opacity, the capacity to obey God without his spirit, you must have the spirit in order to do everything. He gives us that power. Look at another reference here in John chapter 14, verse 17. John chapter 14, verse 17. The scripture says, when the spirit of truth whom the world could not receive. So Jesus says, I'm going to send you the spirit and the world cannot receive him because it sees him not, nor does it know him, but you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Look at this, what this text says. For he dwells in you and shall be with you. The spirit of God dwells with you and shall be in you, period. No qualification. There's no spiritual gymnastics you have to do in order to get the spirit of God. The promise of God is that he will give you his spirit to live within you. I want to take some time to look at one last reference here in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and I want to show you something that's very important. John chapter 7 introduces the, the spirit of God in a very unique way. And it shows us how important the Holy Spirit is and why I believe that unequivocally, with no contradiction, there is absolutely, at the moment of salvation, you receive the spirit of God. John chapter 7, verse 37. So here's what's happening here in this text. It, there's the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's this pouring out of water. It's symbolizing God's sustenance of Israel in the wilderness. And at that moment, Jesus stands up and everyone's looking at the water being poured. And Jesus stands up and he turns this illustration to himself. And he says that if a man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So in other words... Jesus takes this whole illustration, he turns it on itself, and he says, if you're thirsty, you can drink. Come to me and drink. And there was a promise. He promises that you will have spiritual water, spiritual refreshment, a, a spring of pure cleansing water on the inside of you. And he goes on, verse 38, powerful statement, he says, he that believes on me, Notice what the qualification is to receive this life. It's that you just believe. He says, if you believe on me, as the scripture said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now here, there's a twofold promise in this text. One is that you will receive water. And number two, that that water will gush out of you. You shall receive rivers of living water flowing out of you. It's not a trinkle, but a river gushing waters out of you. Those are the two promises. Spiritual refreshment from God and flowing water that comes out of you. Spiritual water that comes into you, salvation, God's spirit, and that flows out of you, which is evangelism. That's what the life is. When God saves you, he gives you his spirit. He fills you up so much so that it overflows out of you that you have to tell everyone about that good news that you've received. That's the promise. John 7, verse 39. Watch this. He says in future tense here, here's the key. He says, but he spoke of the spirit whom he believed on him shall receive. That's future tense because he's talking about the spirit coming. He says, for the Holy Spirit was not given yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus says that when you believe, you can drink of the water of life. And someday, he says, future tense to them in this text, that when the Spirit comes, this water will gush out of you into the world and will come to you because of the Spirit of God. He said the Spirit spoke. 
He said he spoke of the spirit that it was to come. So the principle is this. All who believe receive the spirit. Let's look at it backwards. Who receives the spirit? All those who believe. That's the only qualification. Once the spirit came in Acts chapter 1, the promise was that you shall receive power. You shall receive power after the spirit has come and you will be my witnesses in Judea, uh, in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what he's saying. Jesus says, men, women, all who will be able to hear me, come unto me. You will receive spiritual refreshment, the water of life, and someday the spirit will come to you and you will gush out of you water into the world. And then in Acts chapter 1, the Spirit of God, he gives us this promise that you will receive power. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes. And Jesus says that he spent time with you, talking to the disciples post-resurrection. He says, I've informed you. I've talked to you about the kingdom. And he says, there's nothing that you need to do in order to receive the Spirit. And that's something that is taught, that you have to do all of these things to receive the Spirit. 59 push-ups, spiritual push-ups in order to get the spirit. But what happens? His promise is, is that at salvation, you will receive his spirit. And we see this happening in the book of Acts in chapter 1. He says, you'll receive power. And there's, what do you have to do to get the power? Wait. Do nothing. And that's what they do. They don't do anything. And in fact, we see the disciples weren't able to do anything when Jesus was with them. They were trying to figure out what was going on. But then in Acts chapter 2, the spirit comes and then the water starts to gush out of them. And it flows all throughout the book of Acts. And it drowns Jerusalem within a couple of weeks. That's what happens here. When you receive the Spirit, you will receive power. So if a Christian doesn't have the Holy Spirit when he's saved, then he cannot, he would not have the capacity to even communicate his faith. And that's contrary to everything that we know about the commission that God has given us. And you say, well, maybe, you know, you can try and do it on your own strength for a while. But you know what happens when you try to do the work of God in your own strength? Good answer. Nothing. Nothing happens. The gospel record shows us that before the cross of Christ, before the resurrection, before his ascension, before he sent the spirit, the disciples couldn't do anything. They had no energy. They had no power. But the power began to flow out of them like living waters, like a river, the power of the Spirit, when the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. And that's what happens here in Acts 10 for the Gentiles. They receive the Spirit being poured on them at the moment they believe. And notice again in Acts, uh, excuse me, John chapter 7, verse 39, he says, This spoke of him of the Spirit, whom they that believed on him shall receive. The only qualification, again, for you to receive the Spirit is to believe. Believe it and you will receive the Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit. Growing up in a Pentecostal denomination, we had a large emphasis on the Spirit and the gifts and things of that. And I'm not necessarily going to go into that right now. But coming on the other side and being in a more Reformed Baptist camp, sometimes it seems that we've neglected the Spirit altogether. That the Holy Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. But we need the Spirit. Now, I want to list a few reasons why we need the Spirit. Number one, the Spirit gives us power to be witnesses. You couldn't do anything in terms of communicating the gospel effectively without the Spirit of God. 
Nothing. You can do nothing without the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God in order to effectively communicate our gospel. And we know that when we are communicating the gospel, it's not of us. I have no words, no means to convince someone to come to Christ. It's all the work of the Spirit in their lives. We need the Spirit to be a witness. Second reason you need the Spirit is you need the Spirit for prayer. Do you not know that you can't pray without the Spirit? The Bible says that you don't even know how to pray as we ought. Romans 8.26 says the Spirit helps us in our infirmities. How? Because he lives within you. Scripture says that the Spirit of God, he makes intercessions for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. For he searches the, the heart and knows the mind of the Spirit because he's asking according to the will of God. So we need the Spirit on our lives. I want the Spirit of God in my life because he is praying for me. He is advocating for me on earth while Christ is advocating for me in heaven. We cannot live without the Spirit. We have no advocate on earth beseeching God for you, straightening out our messed up and jacked up prayers. We need him for prayer. The third reason that we need the Spirit is that we need him for security. I'm talking about eternal security. If you don't have the Spirit of God, then you don't have security. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. This is great. He's talking about Christ. He says, in him, you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. At the moment of faith, when you believed, immediately after, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's good news. You were sealed not by the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is the seal. Now, you may be wondering, what, what is this seal? What, what are you talking about? What is this seal? For example, you don't have to go there. Just mark it down. In Daniel chapter 6, you know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. That old king, he decided that he had an ego and that he wanted everyone to pray at a certain time to their gods. And Daniel, he wasn't going to do it. He just went on with his normal prayer rituals, didn't bow. He wouldn't bow and worship any other gods. He didn't make any qualms about what the king said. So what did they do? They threw him in a lion's den. So Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And, and what happens after they're thrown into the lion's den? They close it and he, the lion's den is sealed with the king's seal. And the seal meant security. It meant secure. No one could let him out. And the only thing that could break the seal was a higher authority. And there was no higher authority than the king. It's the same thing that happened when Jesus was buried. When Jesus is buried, they put him in a tomb, they close the tomb, and they seal it with the seal of Rome. He's sealed. It says, this is secure. Only a higher authority than Rome could come and open that seal. And oh, believe me, there was a higher authority who opened that seal. Jesus did. That seal, though, it meant security. It meant secure. It cannot be broken. Now, listen, when you were saved, God said secure. You were sealed. What's the seal? The Holy Spirit. 
And the only one who could ever violate that security must be a higher power, and there is no higher power that exists than God. Beloved, the Spirit is your guarantee that I belong to God. I'm secure. The Spirit is the seal. So I need the Spirit for powerful witness. I need the Spirit for prayer. I need the Spirit for my security. There's another reason that you need the Spirit of God in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. It says that God has promised us an inheritance. And you say, well, what am I going to get? How do I know I'm going to get that inheritance? Scripture says that the Spirit is our earnest. It's a word, that earnest word. It's a word in the Greek that means two things. One, it means down payment. Do you know that God has given you the spirit as a down payment for your full assurance in heaven, inheritance in heaven? So down payment, and then the second word, that earnest word in that Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, it means engagement ring. So when a guy comes to a young lady and says, I love you, she'd go, oh, yeah, that's nice. All right. But when a guy comes to a young lady and says, I love you, then pulls out a rock, she's like, all right, I know, you mean business now. Right? That's the same thing that we see happening here. All of a sudden, the context is different from just a regular I love you and a I love you with something backed it. That's the point here. God says, hey, I promise he's marrying the church. The marriage of the supper of the lamb is coming. And he says, I've given you an engagement ring, a promise. That's the spirit. The Holy Spirit guarantees your full inheritance That's what God has given us. He's given us a promise. He doesn't want to hide that from us. He wants us to know that, that he has given us the spirit as his guarantee. And there is no other thing. We need the spirit of God. Last thing that we need the spirit of God for is that if we don't have the spirit of God, we can't learn anything. The Bible tells us about the spirit is that he leads us and guides us into all truth. Who does that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us in all truth. We need the Holy Spirit. And you may think you can do it on your own, but you cannot. For he guides us into all truth and brings all things to our remembrance. And he speaks of Christ. That's John chapter 16, verse 13. Even in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, he says, We do not need to be taught by men, for we have an anointing from God that teaches us. Who's that anointing from God? That is the Holy Spirit. So to say that you are a Christian and you don't have the Holy Spirit is a total contradiction to everything that is true about our identity. It violates everything from top to bottom of the Christian life. We need the Spirit. It's absolutely necessary. Now, meanwhile, back in Acts chapter 10, we have something to apply and to bring to this text. In verse 44, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them who heard the word. Now we know that they believe. They heard the word, they believe, and they were saved. The Spirit falls on them. This is what happens. When you believe, you receive the Spirit. Really quickly, you may be thinking in your mind, you heard back uh, in Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritans received the Spirit. It wasn't quite like this. It was different. They were already saved, the Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 8. And then later on, they received the Spirit, right? I want to just address that for a second because the way, the norm for this to happen is when you receive the spirit, when you receive salvation, you receive the spirit. In Acts chapter 8, it happens quite differently. And the reason that it happens differently 
for the Samaritans is because, again, the, the Jewish people of the time wanted to keep all of those undesirables out. And so when they were saved, they weren't there. And so then they come to them, and then God pours out the Spirit. And why does he pull out the Spirit later for them? It's so that he can prove this point, is that God wanted the Jews to know that the Samaritans received the same Spirit that they did. Therefore, God withheld in Acts chapter 8 the Spirit from coming to the Samaritans in this initial case. He withheld the Spirit. So when the Jews arrived, when Peter and John arrived, they could see and report back that that same Spirit that they received, the Samaritans received. But that was unnecessary in this particular context for Cornelius and his household. Why? Because, you remember, Peter had come with six men already. They were already there. And so then the spirit comes in what is the normal way. Initially at the point of faith, you receive the spirit of God. And that's what we see happening here. And then what are their response? They are shocked. They are astonished. That's what we see happening here. Because God wants them to know that God has a beautiful plan to bring all of these different groups and melt them together in one body. That's the whole point of Acts chapter 1, Acts chapters 1 through 15. It's to show that Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles are all equally one in Christ. That's the whole point. We are one. We are not alienated from each other. We're not segmented against each other. We have unity in the body. That's the whole point. To prove that they receive the same spirit. And that's what we see happening here. They weren't second-class Christians. The same way that they receive the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is the same way the Gentiles is receiving it here. He gives them a promise for a future. He secures them. He teaches them. All of the work that's begun, they begin to empower them to obey the Word of God. And so now they're hearing these things. And as they hear these things, you may say, uh, <clears throat> so they hear the, the gospel. We know they're, they're saved. They believe because they receive the Spirit. But they're hearing it and there's two kinds of hearing, right? So when people come to church, everyone is hearing the same message right now that I'm preaching, but not everyone's hearing the message. There's two kinds of hearing. There's a hearing that we see in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2, which says that for unto us the gospel was preached and we heard with faith. There's two groups that can come to church and hear the gospel. There's those who will hear with faith and those who hear without it. There's two kinds of hearing. And what we see here is that they heard with faith. Cornelius and his household, they heard with faith and they received and immediately God dispensed the Spirit of God. Christian, you need the Spirit of God and you will receive it when you hear by faith. Look at verse 45. And the believers from the circumcised, right? You see the sect there? They were the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. That was their party. That was their fenced-in group, the circumcised. They said that you have to enter Christianity through Judaism. Why? Because that's what they had built up. And Jesus here, by the power of the Spirit, is smashing down those fences and pouring out the Spirit on these Gentiles. And they're shocked. They're amazed. They're in awe. And we see what all of this happening here in verse 46 for they're hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, extolling God, and then Peter declared. So they're hearing them speaking in languages, speaking in tongues and languages. It's the same thing that we see happening in Acts chapter 2. For the Jews spoke in tongues. And the reason that they spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost 
was because there were so many people there who spoke many different languages. This was to help to get the gospel out to the other men's parts of the world. So they began to speak in other languages. While the crowd was gathered there, they heard the gospel in their own language. Now, in this section, they weren't all foreigners. They were all speaking the same language. They were already sitting there. They were already believing. And so why did they start speaking in tongues? Because this is not a normal thing that happens when you receive the Spirit. It's not a normal thing that happens when you get saved. What happens for them is, again, to prove the whole point, that the same Spirit that you got in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room is the same Spirit we have. The same Spirit. And that's what happens the moment that they believe, they receive the Spirit, they begin to speak in tongues so they can so go back and report and say, the same thing that happened to us happened to the Gentiles. The same Spirit. And we see that happen. So first thing that we see happening is they receive spiritual power. And that's the first result of our salvation. You receive spiritual power. And the second thing is that they have a symbolic confession. God gives them baptism. He gives them an inward baptism. And Peter says, why deny them the outward baptism? Look at verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The implication there is that they may have not wanted to baptize them. They wanted to keep them on the outside group. But Peter stands up and says, they received, they believed and received the Spirit the same way that we have. Why would we deny them baptism? That's what he did. They go and get baptized. Notice how important baptism is here. In the early church, there is no separation, right? We know this in the scripture. There's one Lord. There's one faith and one what? One baptism. That's our public confession. Baptism is an outward expression of our inward change. We're showing the world that what has happened to me, here's a symbolic way of saying what has happened to me on the inside, I'm showing the world and I'm living this out in the world now. Symbolizes the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that now I identify with him. And I love this. Peter tells them to baptize them. I love that. Peter kind of keeps his hands off. So when he goes back and report and they say, well, we don't really know. Peter just did it. Peter baptized him. He says, no, you guys get involved in this. Get your hands in the work of ministry. Baptize them. Can you imagine being a Jew at this time who believed that you have to come through circumcision and come through Judaism to see these people receive the Spirit of God and then have to perform baptism? How amazing that must have been. How changing of their heart. The gospel is present there changing their hearts instantly to say that now I can clearly call you my brothers and sisters. Let's baptize you. Put you in the water. Can you imagine? They can't go back and say, well, we don't know. Peter kind of got a little antsy. We don't really know about their salvation. So no, we were there. We saw it. We witnessed it. We partook in that. And we had their symbolic confession through baptism. It says baptize them. That's a good thing. So we see that the results of salvation, the results of the spirit of God. You get spiritual power. Then there's a symbolic confession through baptism. There's an obedience that we have through baptism. So if you're here today and you're a believer and you haven't yet been baptized, consider that, pray that this is something that you want to partake in. Symbolic confession and then in baptism. And then the third thing, the last thing, and I love this in verse 48. They have sweet, sweet fellowship at the end of verse 48 here. 
And then they asked him to remain for some days. The old translation says they asked him to tarry long with them. I like that language. Do you know what happens? What is a sign of true salvation? Sweet fellowship. You desire to be among other Christians. You desire to learn and to grow with other Christians. It's not many babies that are young newborns that don't desire to eat. It's not many babies that don't desire to be hugged and to be loved, right? And this is exactly what happens to these new baby Christians. They call for Peter and they say, feed us with the word. Love us. Hold us. And Peter is here with a bunch of brand new converts. He's not just going to be out the door. He stays with them. He tarries with them. He feeds them. He loves them. And when you see a, someone professing faith, a new believer, one of the, a, a good litmus test to know if their faith is authentic is their desire to be around Christian fellowship. A desire to know the word more. A desire to be fed. That's a good test to see that someone's authentic about their faith. They desire these things. And so we at Redeemer have many ways for you to come in fellowship apart from the Sunday service. We have community groups, dive in, press in. We have discipleship groups. We have men's ministry and women's ministry, press in. We have a youth group for the younger kids, press in, lean in. God has set up this kingdom in this way that we need each other. We should desire fellowship with other believers. And we see this happening. There's an, almost an exact parallel that happens in Acts chapter 16. A woman named uh, Lydia. She was a seller of purple and she worshiped God and she, the, the Lord opened her heart. She heard the gospel. She was with Paul. The Bible says that her and her household were baptized, just like what we see happening here with Cornelius and his household. They heard the gospel, they were baptized, and then what does she ask of Paul? Stay a while. Stay with us. Certain translation, Acts chapter 6 says, she constrained them to stay. I like that language. She argued with them, stay, don't leave. That's what happens. The same thing that we see happening that happens in, the, in this case with Cornelius. He says, teach us, love us, fellowship with us, minister us. And so we see the full salvation coming to a group of Gentile. What a glorious chapter. What a glorious thing here. And as I close, I want to zero in on this one last point. That God is not a respecter of persons. The door is wide open for all who would believe. And I hope that we are all those people who are not uh, prejudiced with our gospel presentations. That we're willing to share the gospel with any and everybody. Any and everybody. Sharing the gospel with those who aren't like us, who don't think like us, who don't have the same traditions as us. To those people who, even that annoying coworker. They need the gospel. That family member that you don't like to uh, identify with, they need the gospel. They need to hear the gospel because when they hear and they hear with faith, they will receive the spirit and they will be grafted into the body of Christ. We need that. 
And again, as I illustrate it, when the spirit comes, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. We should be people who are excited to evangelize the world without prejudice. I'll close with this little antidote. There was a man by the name of Henry George. He was running for the mayor of New York. And he was called to a meeting. And as he was called to the meeting, the chairman of the meeting gave him a big flowery introduction with all kind of political rhetoric. And he concluded his introduction of Henry George by saying that he's a friend of the working man. And as soon as Henry George got to his feet, took the podium, he said, I like to announce that I am not a friend of the working man. He says, I am for man simply as man. Regardless of any superficial distinctions of race, creed, color, class, function, or employment, I am for men. And that is in a sense what I believe Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm not a friend to the Jews. I'm not a friend to the Gentile. I'm not a friend to the rich. I'm not a friend to the poor. I'm not a friend to the higher up. I'm not a friend of the prostitute. I'm a friend of sinners. And that includes all of us. And I hope that we are friend of sinners. That includes everyone. And that when we share the gospel, that we are the gospel messengers that God is sending into the world to bring Jesus near to those who are far off. Let's be friends of sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you keep no one out of your body. Not because of culture or race or tradition or creed or intelligence or wealth or status, but the gospel is free to all men. Father, we thank you that you've taught us about the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit this morning. We thank you that you reminded us to share the gospel with all men, anywhere and everywhere. Father, we thank you that you've shown us the principles that are obvious in our Christian life and that we desire fellowship and teaching and the confession of Christ openly through baptism and the possession of your spirit. Father, you give us a great legacy. Help us to live up to it. Father, we pray now that as the seed of the word has been watered and planted. We pray that you, by the Spirit, will bring forth your increase in our lives. Amen.